Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get started with this episode, which features a brilliant chat with Vanity Von Glow, I wanted to let you know how you can help Spiked. Spiked is free. All our articles, essays, and podcasts are free to access, and we want to keep it that way so that our ideas reach as wide an audience as possible. And you can help us to do that by making a donation. Times are tough for everyone right now, given everything that is going on in the world. But if you feel you can make a donation, please do. A one-off donation is great and always hugely appreciated, but a regular donation is even better and can really help us to carry on doing what we're doing. Even £5 a month can make a huge difference to our work. So if you like what we do, please consider making a donation today. To do so, just go to www.spiked-online.com and press the big red donate button. That's www.spiked-online.com and press the big red donate button. Now on with the show. I understand there are trans people who feel like their identity is being negated by their non-welcome status in certain spaces. My feeling is I err on the side of the, slightly on the side of the trans person, in that I reckon that if this hadn't become a national debate, they would have just ad hoc been able to go about their lives as they've been doing for 50 years, and it wouldn't really be a problem. But some little jumped up loudmouth got on this morning to bang on about the subject, and now they've ruined it for quiet trans people just trying to go about their lives. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Vanity Von Glow. Vanity is, in her own words, an internationally ignored superstar. She is a drag queen, a cabaret performer, and an outspoken defender of such old-fashioned values as freedom of speech and tolerance. She has performed across the UK and around the world, and she has developed a reputation not only as a very, t- very talented performer and singer, but also as someone who is willing to put her neck on the line for progressive ideals. Vanity, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. This is the most exciting thing that's happened to me since quarantine began. (laughs) Well, I was going to kick off by asking you, this is actually one of the first podcasts I've recorded during the quarantine, during the lockdown of the whole of society. And um, in my view, the house arrest of 66 million citizens. And I wanted to ask you what a drag queen does in these kinds of circumstances, because you are notoriously sociable creatures who are out all the time, and now you are suddenly forced to be behind closed doors. What is it like? Yes, I feel a bit, I don't know what truth there is to this, but when I was younger, in the Disney movie, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, they keep referring to gypsies not being, inverted commas, good indoors that I think there's something about the containing of the gypsy spirit that doesn't really work well for them. And I think that's a little bit uh, the case here too. But on the other hand, as much as it's stifling to be limited in this way, it's actually the longest I've ever gone without having to sing or perform for an audience in about 11 years. And 
I haven't missed it as much as I might have thought to. So, <laughs> so I've kind of been enjoying a sort of enforced holiday in a strange way. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back to the beginning or, or the beginning of a time when many people, including me, first heard of you, which was May 2018, which might strike fear into your heart. But of course, that was the time when you spoke at the Day for Freedom <laughs> and came to many people's attention as someone who was very willing to stand up for freedom of speech. You were introduced by Tommy Robinson and uh, other people who were at that day included the likes of Milo Yiannopoulos and so on. And all hell broke loose, essentially. So can you just give us a brief breakdown of what happened during that day and more importantly, in the aftermath of it? Yes. Well, I mean, to, to understand, the Day for Freedom was an event at which originally it was an event that was supposed to be held in Hyde Park Corner. And uh, Hyde Park Corner has a long tradition of crazy people saying crazy things. And so sharing the platform with crazy people saying crazy things wasn't necessarily odd within itself when I was originally asked to do it. And what had been happening around us in uh, sort of in the online world and in, and in universities and venues was, of course, this creeping culture of no platforming and of cancelling, what we now obviously call cancel culture. But I don't remember us having that vocabulary for it two years ago. And the, the, the straw that had broken the camel's back, I suppose in part, humorously, I say this, but uh, Shania Twain, the country singer, had said that had she not lived in Switzerland and had she not been a Canadian and had she been voting in the, uh, in the 2016 election, she might have voted for Donald Trump. And she could understand, I suppose, part of her constituency as a performer, as a country singer, might include a lot of Trump supporters. And so she had some sympathy for why they might have voted for him. She didn't vote for him. Uh, there's quite a few stages of the hypothetical involved in, you know, not living in Switzerland, not being Canadian. She didn't actually vote for him, but people were clamoring, calling for her tour to be cancelled and for no one to buy her album. And as a Shania Twain fan, this <laughs> offended me. But more importantly, as somebody that believes that we should, we should cultivate an attitude, uh, a positive attitude towards free speech and to tolerating people's difference of opinion, I, it made me uneasy that this was kind of a prevailing response. So when I performed at the Day for Freedom, which was eventually held on Whitehall just outside Downing Street, I took to the stage and I sang a Shania Twain song and I explained that for me, free speech is something which, while of course people are, I suppose, welcome to call for Shania Twain's cancellation, I actually think that free speech is underpinned by a, a sense of tolerance for other people's difference of opinion and that the LGBT community above all should really be grateful for free speech because it was something that helped us organize. It's a principle of tolerance that we, that we argue for in our own lives. So that, that was why I was there. Uh, yeah. That's what I used my time on stage to, to communicate. I didn't have anything to say about Islam or the Muslim community, which we know Tommy Robinson never shuts up about. I wasn't there to endorse anybody else's views on any of the subjects about which they were speaking. But the aftermath was that BuzzFeed, Vice, and a lot of your blue tick people on Twitter came in really hard in their criticism of me. I mean, this was in the hours afterwards, so none of them had even seen what I'd said on stage. Nobody asked me what was going on. People like George Takai, you know, from Star Trek, you know, a man with a massive voice, globally, millions of followers, they were all extremely vehement in their criticism of me. And the 
end result of my protest against cancel culture was that these people contacted venues that I performed in to get me cancelled. The irony of which was, of course, not lost on me. I completely agree that cancel culture hadn't really entered mainstream discussion at that point. But I think if we were to look back at the emergence of cancel culture as an idea or or as a, a motivation, I think it's arguable that you were one of the first and key victims of that. Because as you said at the time, following this extraordinary fuss that was kicked up around your appearance at a free speech event, uh, you said at the time that, you know, not only are they coming for me and my ideas, but they were also coming for your source of income. And so what you have, I think, in a situation like that is not simply responding to your ideas with criticism, which is absolutely fine. Freedom of speech means that you say something and everyone else criticizes you. That's that's good. But it was also an attempt to financially punish you. It was an attempt to make you suffer economic consequences for holding certain views. So in terms of them coming for your source of income, how did that play out? What did that mean? I think there is a a killer instinct in this type of sort of mad crowd mentality. I think there is an attempt to hobble me. I think the perception being that one, to to be a performer that's had some success and, you know, I've performed for 11 years and I suppose I have a, a name for myself and do work, you know, in the UK and abroad. I think that the perception for these people was that I by dint of having some level of a high profile, that the high profile I might have enjoyed was a reward for my work, but that they wanted to take the reward away. They wanted to sort of cut me off at the knees, contact venues. I mean, I I used to perform two sold out shows at the in Soho every Sunday, and uh, we'd been selling it out for three years. It was really great sort of space for me to perform in, in which I managed to really develop a lot as a performer. So that was kind of like the jewel in my crown of the gigs that I did. But I also had other gigs all around the place, uh, sometimes gay bars, sometimes nightclubs, uh, you know, the usual sort of fare that you'd expect from a nightlife performer, from a drag artist. And these venues were being pressured in some cases by people like I, who I knew fairly well, like were contacting them going, are you aware that, that Vanity's performed at this? Other venues are cancelling or what are you going to do about it? And obviously I'd given a lot of thought to what, informs and inspires that type of response. And I do think that there is a kind of a nastiness that comes from these people didn't necessarily create a successful space for themselves as performers Mm. or as entertainers. And there's a sense of resentment towards anybody that builds or achieves something. And so if they can't do it, they're not going to let you have it. Because again, at this point, I hadn't gone on Sky News and talk radio and these these outlets. I hadn't gone on to respond. So there was just a lot of, ironically, a lot of hatred for something that I think was ultimately very misunderstood on their part, which was kind of nasty, obviously. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the in terms of the nasty streak, one thing that strikes me about cancel culture or no platforming or whatever form it takes is that there is an incredibly unforgiving element to it. So it's there's no possibility of talking to you about the views you hold. There's no possibility of having a discussion with you or having a debate. It's simply, you simply must be shut down. And it's almost like 
you know, moral leprosy. You are a bad person. You're an evil person. You have to be cast out. And I thought your case was a good example of how this culture gives rise to a situation where if you hold a different point of view, not only are you potentially wrong, not only are you potentially unwise in what you're saying and all those other things were part, which are part and parcel of freedom of discussion, but, but you are immoral. You are evil. You are wicked. And therefore you must be cast out. Did you feel that when you were going through this period? Yeah, very much. And I think it's interesting that, I mean, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I do consider myself a bit of an expert in cunty behavior. So <laughs> I, uh, when I see this, it occurs to me, I think, that the people who take that approach, I think they're possibly very shame sensitive. For example, like they kind of want to kill you in a sense, or they certainly want to financially ruin you, make you lose your work, socially ostracize you. We all also know the outcomes of those types of things for a lot of particularly men. Uh, you know, there are men that, that are uh, not coordinated to handle that level of pressure and indeed women who wouldn't respond well. I mean, we look at Carolyn Flack recently who, without speculating too much, but certainly was the victim of a, a form of cancel culture and uh, obviously was really struggling with that when she killed herself. So I think that when their stated purpose is to ruin you, if you then turn out to actually not be the fascist they've been accusing you to be, which I think two years later I haven't been, uh, <laughs> I've not been donning any white hoods or attending ED EDL events or anything like that. I think that they can't even bear to look you in the face, which is the one thing that they'd have to do to reconcile the situation because they feel guilt about the bad thing that they're actually doing. Like they know it's not good for me. A lot of these people, like it took them like over a year before they would even really talk to me again. And that wasn't necessarily because I think they thought I'd done something awful. It's because they thought they'd done something yeah. awful and yeah. trying to take somebody down so quickly and with so little understanding of what was going on. I've sensed that in some of this kind of cancel culture events where the people who whip themselves up into a frenzy and become part of a mob over time, they develop a sense of regret for having done that, or they a sense of shame for having been involved in such a, a, a problematic project. But yeah, I, it's, like, it's, it's like after the frenzy, after the after the excess, people sort of feel a bit sheepish and a bit silly. I want to ask you about the role of identity politics in relation to this as well, because one of the I think one of the most striking things about cancel culture, and the reason it, it can be so ferocious, is because of the the taking of offense. You know, I, I actually think people do genuinely sometimes feel deeply offended and deeply wounded by words when I don't necessarily think they should, but I think it's very interesting that they do. And I wonder if identity politics and victim politics in particular play a key role in that, because what it means is that it creates a situation where if you hear a criticism of your lifestyle or a criticism of your way of life or an alternative point of view that you presume is damaging to your self-esteem, you start to compute it as a threat to everything that you represent and a, th and a threat to your existence itself. So I wonder if the, the ferocity of the response to someone like you speaking at the Day for Freedom or to anyone who raises criticisms of woke culture or contemporary left-wing culture – I wonder if part of that springs from this extreme, almost sense of psychic vulnerability and this notion that anything, any words or ideas that run counter to your own must in some way be deeply harmful and therefore destroyed. I think that there's almost a possessive greed 
you know, this idea to center yourself within events that are going on. So one thing that struck me around that, that experience of mine with the Day for Freedom, since it's fresh in my mind because we're talking about it right now, uh, is that there was a, a non-binary Muslim refugee performing artist in London who, as I understand it, is not particularly sought after as a performer. That is not to say whether they're good or not. I have no idea, but I didn't know who they were. They were sort of a, a young person trying to get into a performing career. And, and they were messaging me and we had a, a useful exchange to some extent because they were actually engaging with me, but we would always get to a point where like they just couldn't wrap their head around the idea that what I, my performing at that event wasn't about them and wasn't an act of violence against them or it wasn't an act of slight against them. And I, what I thought was interesting is there's been an event take place in a city of 9 million people. There were four or 5,000 people at the event. I'm a performer who you, who you don't even know, like personally don't even know. And you've taken this very personally, like I betrayed you, I betrayed your community. It's strange to me, this sort of magnetizing of, of trying to draw the source of offense closer and closer to themselves. It's almost like charging themselves up on that battery and then running around like the Duracell bunny about how offended they are. And I think that I do understand, I'm very extroverted myself, and I understand how I, I draw a lot of my energy creatively and socially from other people and from external sources. You know, I'm, I'm acutely aware of that at the moment whilst in quarantine and lockdown. But I try my best to charge my batteries with good energy. And this seems to be an attempt by this person to sort of feverishly to, to heat themselves up on sort of like bad vibes. And I just, I think that that's weird to me. I mean, I often find myself feeling sorry for the people who are most woke as the phraseology goes, or most sensitive to these issues. I often feel sorry for them because I imagine that if you go through life interpreting everything as a slight or every advert you see on the London underground you think is targeted at you for being, I don't know, overweight or different, or every movie you see, you have to yeah. count the number of lines that the black character says against the number of lines that the white character says, or every song you hear, you have to analyze for problematic lyrics. I just think it must make for an exhausting, joyless existence, which I think is one of the best arguments for tackling this culture, which is to allow people to relax and to allow them to recognize that not everything is about them and their feelings. Yes. And I think so as well. I think that this sort of posture that people assume, and I think that often they assume it so long it becomes, you know, if you adopt an intellectual posture, it becomes your nature. And I think that something that begins for these people as a way to feel like they're connecting more deeply with the world just becomes kind of an obstruction to actually connecting with other people because there's obviously a lot of appeal to a lot of the ideas. I hate calling it woke culture, uh, but I haven't thought of another thing to say about it. And I, I hate the term politically correct as well. You, nobody wants to be that guy that says it's political correctness gone mad. No, you know, that's an awful phrase. Uh, so you don't want to say that. But anyway, I think that there's a lot of appeal for young people in the navel gazing and of the pouring over the content of lyrics. And I think it makes them feel like they're being smart and analytical. So I see where it comes from. It can't be the only tool that you use to see the world. And I think that's the problem here is like for a lot of young people, it, it's kind of all they've got that makes them feel perceptive. By the way, I completely agree about the, the the paucity of 
phraseology in relation to all of this culture and, and wokeness doesn't capture it and political correctness I find increasingly irritating as a phrase because I often think one of the problems with those phrases is that in my view they don't capture the magnitude of what is happening. They it makes what's happening sound yeah. quite small when in fact um the fact that we live in a society in which people on a very regular basis are hounded and demonized simply for an expressing an alternative point of view is actually something very serious and deeply worrying for those of us who think there should be a healthy, liberal, open-minded debate about everything under the sun. Yes. And actually, I would also say that a problem that I have with terminology like woke and stuff like that is that's only language for the people who sort of have our general approach and style of approach to liberty and to discussion. Um, I actually think that as soon as we use that language, we're switching off the people to whom we might be most desiring to actually communicate with. Mm. So it's, it, for, for me, it's very useful for, for, for example, uh, for Douglas Murray and for Andrew Doyle, it's very useful for them to sell tickets to their show that they're doing, their Resisting Wokeness show. But I think there's a lot of preaching to the converted that goes on in this space. And because I work so much around and with creatives in London who are very much of that way of thinking, and I, I want to talk and bring people together. Uh, so I try to resist those terms for that reason. But on the other hand, it, you know, we've still got to have language where we know what we're talking about. And, <laughs> and it does work for our purposes, I suppose. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I want to come back to something you said earlier, which is you were, you said you were surprised or, or concerned that the LGBT sections of the LGBT community would be dismissive of the idea of freedom of speech, particularly given that freedom of speech played such a key role in the progress of the LGBT community, just as it did in the progress of all other um, repressed or oppressed or, or minority groups throughout history. It's always been mm. the chief tool, in fact, for people to organize themselves, to express themselves, to make their case and to gain some measure of independence. So one of the things that worries me, I consider myself a man of the left, which everyone thinks is ridiculous, but there, there you go. One of the things that worries me is the way in which communities or groups which traditionally would have had a, a small L liberal approach, a progressive approach, a, 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 a kind of countercultural pro-freedom approach. Now, those groups are often at the forefront of cancel culture or at the forefront of problematizing certain views. Do you think there's been a shift in the left, I suppose we could call it, in the, in the liberal left, the soft left, the radical left, or whatever it is, has there been a shift in the left away from a kind of appreciation for rebellion and counterculture and, and freedom towards something that's a bit more stiff and, and um, censorious? I assume so. I think back to when I was formulating a sense of a, having like a political, I wouldn't say ideology, but when I was putting together my own politics in my head, when I was a teenager, I used to listen to The Moral Maze on the BBC Radio 4. So I'd, listen, I'd stay out late at night. I think it was on at like 11. So 
you know, it would be the last thing I listened to before I went to bed. This was in the era of the West Wing, which was my favorite show. So I, I remember loving the sort of version of liberalism uh, from the characters there. And so for me, when I was formulating my political ideas, I was left wing, but very much in that sort of liberal tradition that it was the left wing that wanted more freedom, not more inverted commas safety. And I do think that now, particularly you are right with the LGBT, young LGBT people, I think, regard the world as a more dangerous place today than the young LGBT people in the UK did in when I was like 14, you know, which was, I'm 30, so that was in the early to mid 2000s. And I do think that that's interesting because I think that it's crazy to think that LGBT people are less safe today than they were. Um, so I think that people have emerged from this recent era, young people have emerged from this era wanting more security, not realizing how secure they are. Um, and the outcome of that is that they want more security, so they're hypervigilant for threats. And so, th you know, it's that inflation of the concept of harm. Again, the basis for people's outrage at the Day for Freedom was that I was contributing towards the harm that minorities experience in this country by sharing a platform with people who are critical of Islam. Yeah, so I think nowadays the LGBT movement is kind of fixated a bit on some of the smaller potatoes like microaggressions and are people saying nasty things online. And uh, it's a little bit sad. And, and it's sad for me because I think that part of the defining characteristics of the gay man as, a, as an archetype or as the potential to be an archetype in history was that they actually came out of difficult circumstances with a real sense of joie de vivre. Uh, often a, a tragic sense of decadence and of, of partying and stuff like that. But there was a real wit and a real coping mechanism. And I think it's sad to think that young LGBT people, like that's not really going to be developed necessarily by this generation. I don't think we're ever going to have another Oscar Wilde. Well, not that necessarily my generation were turning them out either, but there we are. <laughs> that's an important point because I think one of the striking things about minority groups and how they interact with society and their surroundings is that there is a bit of a difference between the past and the present. You know, in the past, for example, the LGBT community suffered genuine oppression. I mean, there were actual laws preventing them, firstly, from having sexual relations. And then even after those were repealed, there were various uh, structural barriers to their full engagement in society. And that lasted for quite a long time. But the rebellion against that was, you know, pretty full on and not lacking in wit. And and full of confidence in many instances. It wasn't a kind of self-flagellating, woe-is-me approach. And often what you find today is that among some LGBT activists, so this is not necessarily everyone, this is a relatively small number of people, there is this sense that life is incredibly hard, things will never improve. There are many worrying things about that. I think it, it colours how people engage with the world. But I think one of the worrying things is that it, it implicitly sometimes unwittingly downplays all the massive gains that were made historically, 1967, 1972, in the 1980s as well, all the historic gains that were made by previous generations who struggled against this stuff. So it has this kind of self-defeating element to it as well. The notion that life is still incredibly hard for these people, I think, is, is untrue and also demeans what has been achieved historically. Yeah, it's interesting, the idea. I think you said something in there about sort of the confidence. I, I think back to the debates around equal marriage and remembering that at the time 
where that was a discussion in this country. Equal marriage wasn't something that I, as a gay person, was particularly interested in because I didn't really feel like I required the approval of society in my union making. And we already had the provision of a civil partnership. And my argument, I think, at the time was kind of more that I feel like if straight people want a civil partnership, well, then they can have that. But, you know, I didn't really love the idea that we needed to fight over replicating what straight people had. And I feel like that kind of view is one that has a certain rejection of wanting to participate in society in a certain way. It's like being a gay man, I don't have to marry, I don't have to have kids, I don't have to play house, I don't have to do those things. I think it was a failing of the conservatism of your Thatchers and your Michael Howards. It was a failure on their part to appreciate that by enabling gays to get married, you actually enfranchise them in society and you enable them to join in the legacy of conservatism. And I think it was a mistake for them not to not do that. I think it's something that David Cameron got right. Because the funny thing is now, all the young gay people, because they've grown up in a world where there is equal marriage, or at least where it's not outlandish to suggest that there is, they all want to get married, I think. Like all the young people I know, like it's very conformist and very settled down white picket fence, which is fine, by the way. They're totally entitled to that. And actually, like, you know, I've, I've fallen in love with people who I've thought, God, yeah, really, maybe I do want to get married. So it's not that I'm opposed to it now, but I do think that part of the, the sort of the alternative persona of the gay person is maybe less available now, or maybe they're all finding it in being non-binary. Uh, maybe there's a, maybe there's a craving to retain your otherness and that that's how young gay people are doing it now. Um, I want to come on to the non-binary thing in a moment because that, I think, deserves a bit of consideration. But I think that's right. And in fact, in relation to the gay marriage question, Peter Tatchell, certainly in the early days of the discussion about gay marriage, made a very similar point, which was that, you know, the gay liberation front that he was involved in in the early 1970s through to the 1980s was not about collapsing gays into the structures that already existed, but arguing that it was possible to have a lifestyle outside of that and that you should be free to choose a life outside of that. So he was, at least in the early days, he was worried about the rise of the argument for same-sex marriage because he saw it as a bit of a negation of what he had traditionally been the ideal of gay liberation. But I wonder, in relation to the shift that has taken place in some of these movements, I wonder if one of the key issues is the move from the ideal of autonomy to the ideal of validation. Because it strikes me that if you look back to, for example, the Gay Liberation Front or the Women's Liberation Movement or National Liberation Movements, I mean, the key word in all of those movements was liberation. It was about the right of people to live as they chose without having to win the approval of the state or the moral majority. Very often now, I think we have younger movements which are more concerned with winning respect and validation for their lifestyle, which means that they become reliant upon external forces for validation. And so it kind of chips away yeah. at their liberty. And I think that creates some of these problems. Yeah. I mean, I always, you know, one of my favorite actors is Catherine Hepburn, uh, the, you know, obviously an iconic figure and particularly an iconic figure in terms of being an early example of a certain type of feminist, you know, that that second wave uh, feminism of the, I mean, she was around in the 1930s, right through to working into the 80s. And she said that the greatest gift that her parents gave her was freedom from fear. 
Now, she was a very affluent woman when she, when she grew up in an affluent situation, but I always think that she's got this sort of fortitude to her, uh, this unflappableness. She always gave off the impression that she really didn't care what you thought of her. And, you know, that she's, she's one of my idols. She's somebody who I've always, you know, since first discovering her, have always looked up to as an example of the kind of uh, spirit that you want to embody in life. And um, she would be such an anomaly today. I mean, she was an anomaly, I suppose, back then, but she's not necessarily the sort of person that young people look up to today. And I think that freedom from fear is how you can become a self-sufficient person in the world. And what this young generation have done is like, I could myself in a way because I was on social media when I was in high school, you know, from like 13 and 14. And um, it's all about the projection of curated identities because you have to build a profile. You make yourself use the best picture of yourself. You edit off comments that you made that didn't get a good response. You only keep up the good stuff. And I think that in a much more structured way, young people are actually creating false selves than they might have used to do. And it's interesting because my name as a performer is Vanity Von Glow. And for me, vanity was the quality, you know, vanity being an obsession with a false self and with the maintenance of a false self, uh, which I think is actually what drag partially can be. And I think it's also what kids are doing on social media. And it basically creates a narcissistic feedback loop. So I think you're quite right to say that these maybe the defining characteristic of, or maybe all generations think the defining characteristic of the one that follows is that they're more narcissistic than they are. <laughs> and what it, what it creates is people that lack core confidence. They're not genuinely confident. They're only confident if they get, you know, 200 likes on their picture. They can't decide for themselves if an outfit looks good unless it's been run past, you know, their Twitter followers first. And I think that that's not great. You know, I, I can see how it's come about. I think that's a really useful point. And it, it makes me think of Christopher Lash, the American writer who wrote Culture of Narcissism in 1979, I think, which I reread often. Ooh. I think it's one of the best guides to the modern world. And he made the point that the difference between old style individualists, kind of the rugged individualist, is that they would see the world as a place in which they could make a splash, make an impact, carve it out in their own image. Whereas the contemporary narcissist sees the world and expects to see himself reflected back. And I think yes, um, that, that, that's really come to fruition in the social media era and, you know, the quote marks, the woke era or the PC era or, or however we want to describe it is I think this collection of almost fragile identities, which needs constant validation, constant um, stroking, the self-esteem must always be kind of um, bolstered and protected, which I think actually creates both um, fragile individuals, but also a weaker society because a society that's made up of people who need constant uh, validation is not going to be a healthy, free, liberal, open society. Yeah, and it's funny because the thought just occurred to me there. When the Day for Freedom sort of debacle happened, you know, we're talking there were like thousands of people posting on my Facebook, tagging me and, uh, you know, being you know, quite horrible. And uh, obviously I lost you know, thousands of pounds worth of work over that summer. It took a while to build things back. And actually, with the benefit of hindsight now, two years on, I think I was traumatized by the experience of being rejected in that way. And also of identifying that after things got to a certain volume, it was unrecoverable. Basically, once the mob were unchallenged, there was nobody that would be able to challenge them. 
And so I knew I just had to ride it out. And what a friend of mine said to me at that time was, because they were worried for me, that knowing me for as long as they have known me for about 12 years, they did think that of all the people they knew, I, I had the type of personality and the type of character to actually bear the weight of it. And that if it had happened to anyone, like they would have thought that I could sort of manage it. And what I think of that is that for me, while of course it was very hurtful and it was in some ways kind of traumatic, so I'm not saying it was was a walk in the park, it wasn't. But I also do understand that I poked the bear in a sense. I don't think it was right what happened, but I do think that I take responsibility for my own participation and my own fate. But for me, at the bottom of the line is like, I think a healthy skepticism that the people coming for me were acting in good faith and also therefore not really caring what they think. I, like I'm a very narcissistic person. I'm a performer for God's sake, of course, you know, I am drawn to the, to the applause as a moth to a flame. But ultimately I think I have a, a sense of self, which isn't reliant on how well liked I am on the internet. So when I talk around these issues, as we're doing now, I, I talk in this way and I talk with a lot of the young people who I know working in clubs and stuff. There's always 20 year olds flitting around and, and I'm friends with a lot of young people. And to me, it's like, I don't necessarily just hold these views because I think that they're right. I also think that they're the right way for you to be able to handle the difficult things that are going to come your way in life. You know, build a sense of a strong sense of self that is built around the literature you read, the movies you watch, the friends you keep, but ultimately it shouldn't be shallow. It shouldn't be surface. It shouldn't be an internet identity. That's a really useful way of understanding Twitter storms or controversies right now, because I've had the exact same experience. Whenever I found myself in a Twitter storm, which has happened a few times, the only thing you can do is ride it out. It's so interesting that, that you describe it like that, because I've had the exact same experience where you kind of wait for the big pushback or you wait for the alternative group of people who will say, hold on, what about freedom of speech? And it doesn't actually come most of the time. So you kind of have to just bide your time, wait, and then it, it usually expires itself because it, they are these kind of frenetic malarial explosions of anger. And they do they do run their course, yeah. but it, it's quite worrying that you kind of have to just sit back and wait for it to end. Yes. It's like a swarm of locusts. Did you know they will go on to the next biblical town? And actually, I think an important thing as well, I'd imagine the people, you know, the people listen to your podcast and I think they'll, they know what we're talking about. They know about how this Twitter stuff works. And I do think that an important thing, I'm a firm believer. And if you believe you've done something wrong and you want to apologize, by all means apologize. But apologizing for stuff under sort of duress or to make a problem go away, that's not how I want to do things. Like I want to have integrity. Perhaps having an excess of integrity and not enough good judgment is what gets me into trouble in some situations. But I knew better than to cough up an insincere apology because while I see people doing that when they have a pile on, they misunderstand what's happening to them. And actually what's happening to them is nobody's interested in your apology. They're trying to kill you right now. Like they literally don't care. And if you give them the apology, you've, they've just made you their bitch. They will not welcome you back into the tribe. You know what I mean? The things that you're hoping the apology will do. If you look, if you mean the apology, God, I, I have to apologize for things all the time in my life. You know, I mess up a lot. I'm a firm believer in apologies, but you've got to be very clear about how sincere you're being because my advice to people going through that situation is it is a mistake to think that things are going to get better just because you issue an apology for something like that. 
You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. Very often, the the contemporary apology plays the form of a, a, a recanting. I mean, what they really want is for you to yeah. recant. Uh, they want a, a public yeah. recanting of your views or a kind of self-flagellation. And it's basically an apology for having believed the thing that you believe. And I think to apologize for something that you actually believe or you actually think is important is actually quite a self-negating demeaning thing to do but uh, yes i think we do we do more harm uh, also in the long term for i think there's potential to do yourself more psychological harm to live outside of your own values by apologizing for something that you're not sorry for i think that that's the sort of thing that you would really punish yourself in because you know at least uh, at least when you're standing in your truth as as the <laughs> awful phrase but if you're standing in your truth at least you've got that you know <laughs> Absolutely. Which actually touches upon a point you made there just a moment ago, which I think is quite important, which is encouraging younger people in particular, whether they're young activists, young performers, or just ordinary young people, to have a sense of self, a sense of self-control, a sense of being an important person, being a free-willed person, not being someone who has to wait for the validation of whether it's a hundred likes on Instagram or the approval of the moral majority or everyone bowing down to them and saying, yes, I recognize your identity. That's such an important message, I think, to send to the newer generation, because it's only through having that kind of Catherine Hepburn style, I don't give a damn approach that people, it's not about becoming an isolated, atomized person. It's about becoming a confident person, which actually makes yeah. you more likely to engage in society, to connect with others, because you have a secure sense of who you are. So I think one of the things I encounter all the time when I speak on universities or in, in schools and so on, I meet lots and lots of young people who almost wallow in a sense of fragility and and think it's quite a cool thing to be super sensitive and super fragile. And I always want to say to them, listen, no, if you build up a sense of confidence and a desire to project yourself into the world, you probably will have a more, a, a nicer, more productive life as a consequence of that. Yeah. I think that people are sometimes, they find it difficult to separate concepts like toxic masculinity from masculinity. And so they find it hard to separate concepts like a confident person I think they associate almost that that is to the negation of the personalities around the confident person, which it isn't. Yeah, you know the greatest work by the. I mean, God, you look at a think of a West End production of a musical where every single person in that production is enormously confident, right down to the musicians. To the they're confident in the thing that they're doing, that that what their role in this machine is, and you know, brilliant work and brilliant things come out of a sort of a, a sense of assuredness in oneself. And it's not always easy to come by that, but that's why it requires development from a young age. And so I think often about in this current generation, the thing to do is drag. It's, it's, it's the new punk rock, right? Except it lets. So I suppose you would think of punk rock as being, you know, if you look at the punk kids in the eighties, you know, these are people that all seemed enormously confident. Although I'd imagine internally, if you were in the social cliques, there's probably that girl with the crazy hair and the crazy makeup who actually is a nervous wreck, but she's projecting very well because of the image of punk. And I think that if you think of the way that drag and gender bending and all that kind of stuff, which is very popular nowadays, that's what the kids do when they go to the clubs. 
even just the pink hair thing, the soft pastel hair, these are all very soft sort of flora and fauna kind of vibes. I think it's interesting that there is a sort of like a softening and that looks, you can be a wonderful and wonderfully confident, gentle person. So it's not to say otherwise to that, but I think that you can sometimes see clues to things mm. just in the way that people are trying to represent themselves visually. Okay. All right. So I want to ask you about gender bending and gender and womanhood and transgenderism and all these incredibly prickly issues. I, I heard you recently in a venue in London talk about these things in great depth. And I wanted to just raise some of these things with you because it's such a fascinating area of contemporary culture and contemporary life. And even the fact that I said the word she when I was introducing you at the start of this podcast will, I noticed that. will strike some people as deeply offensive. So a nice way to kick off this final section of the discussion is just to ask you what you would consider to be the difference between drag performance, drag artistry, and transgenderism. I think they've always been different, but I think right now in the culture we live in, I think they're incredibly different things. How would you understand that. I mean, I know there are some people would have the argument that gender is a performance. And so the difference between a drag artist and say a trans woman or indeed a, a, a traditional woman, I hate the term cis woman. I hate the term yeah. cisgender woman. Just, just, it's like clumsy and just, I don't like it. Really the difference is that the, the drag queen's a professional entertainer. So they're, they're working. Uh, so I suppose, yes, if gender is a performance, then I, yeah, I sort of get that. But for me, I perform as a female character called Vanity Von Glow. Although for me, the persona that I adopt as an, as an artist is a, in part an homage, but in part a parody of the diva persona. You, you could take that persona right back to the old operas and to Puccini, where the diva was the lead singer and she was the lead vocalist in the opera. And she was the most exaggerated woman, exaggerated in her attire, exaggerated in her hair, but also an exaggerated woman, tempestuous in her response to real or imagined slights and uh, extremely gracious when she wants something. You know, the diva is an exaggeration. And for me, in comedy and in performance, in the extremes where you exaggerate a personality, that's where the best comedy and the best drama emerges. So what I do as a performer is I created a diva personality and I sing the songs of Streisand and all that stuff. But there's also a lot of whimsy because with that diva personality, we have status. And I think that status is the birthplace of a lot of human discomfort. And so therefore is the site of a lot of humor. There's a lot of comedy and status. So what does that have to do with being a woman? Nothing really. It just so happens that in our species, the diva persona is kind of more female. Obviously in birds, the peacock is the, you know, the male peacock is the diva of the bird sort of community. So for <laughs> me, because I have so many trans friends and I, I've worked with and around the trans community for so long, I think that a lot of what I hear being debated in relation to trans in the media there's a lot of, I think, red herrings. I don't think that necessarily the self-appointed activists for a lot of trans things that go on this morning and whatnot, I don't necessarily think that they represent all the trans people that I know. And I often think particularly what frustrates me is that, I mean, some of the people, your Monroe Bergdorf, for example, who I, I kind of know her, we've judged some, we judged some talent competitions together back in the day. And I don't think she's particularly bright. I, I think she's consumed with herself. 
but worse than those offences, she's just not really got a great sense of humour. And actually, I think that the trans people I know who have had to navigate life as unusual characters, as they were seen to be unusual characters, and have lived as the gender that people would often assume them not to be, you know, they may have been born male and they're living as a woman, actually, they've developed quite a wicked sense of humour about their circumstances, especially the trans people that would come to trans nightclubs and to trans events. Obviously, there are a lot of trans people who like who will transition and then assimilate entirely and nobody would ever know and they, they don't participate in the trans community. So it kind of frustrates me sometimes the discussions that we have around it. Those voices are absent from it. And I think it might come down to the fact that, you know, they've not got 10 tons of silicon in their tits and, and big hair and all the rest of the very televisable stuff of Monroe Bergdorf, you know? I completely agree with you that the transgender activists, or certainly the ones who get the most airtime, are not necessarily representative of trans people. And in fact, there's huge, and this goes for all sorts of community groups that claim to speak for communities. They're often not as representative as they claim. And I think that's true of the transgender activist community too. But I think one of the most striking differences between drag artistry and the trans movement, so this is not trans people, I think one of the most striking differences is on the level of humour. And very often the trans movement, the leaders of the trans movement, are notable by their humourlessness. And going back to the cancel culture, in terms of the war on certain feminists who are critical of transgenderism or who think it's who, by the way, some of those feminists also aren't experts in humor, as it must be said. But I think there's this unforgivingness um, and this constant seriousness. And I, I think that's one of the differences between those two groups. Well, I think that, uh, you know, if we're referring to, uh, to the people uh, <laughs> who I think are somewhat rudely called TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists, I, like, I don't really care for them. This is this isn't a this isn't a fight that I have an enormous investment in, but what does strike me is that there's a lot of offence taking on the part of the turfs. You know, it's that same thing again. That sort of I do think some turfs seem to be of the impression that a trans person is transitioning to come and get them, and I'm like, that's not the case. I understand there are some feminists who are worried about trans people using toilets and stuff like that. But actually, I think that's one of your red herring things. Do you know the funny thing is I perform as a woman for all intents and purposes all the time. And for 11 years, I'll just use the ladies' bathroom and nobody cares. And to be honest, if anybody was going to be a sexual pervert in a bathroom, it would probably be me with the sorts of outfits I sometimes wear on stage. And nobody cares. And I, I really don't think anybody actually cares about this particular subject. I think it's so frustrating that it's one that's been blown up. And I think it's partly because of that thing. You know, there's the people speaking about it are very solemn and uh, on all on all sides. And the, the TV show RuPaul's Drag Race, there used to be a segment where the contestants got an email or like a video message from RuPaul uh, where it said, you've got she-mail. So a little pun there about, you know, it's an email, it's a she-mail. And... The network that broadcasts the show in the States forced the production company to take that out because the trans lobby were really offended at this joke that they were assuming is about them. I would say that being a drag artist and not a trans person, I've been on the receiving end of violence and violent slurs in the street before that take on the exact same tenor as a transphobic attack. So I would, I would venture that a drag queen is on the receiving end of the exact same form of hate in a lot of cases. Uh, thugs don't really care 
how you self-identify. They just don't like seeing men in dresses or what they see to be men in dresses. Uh, and so this section was taken out of the show and this really, really frustrated RuPaul himself, who is actually quite philosophical on a lot of these issues and is why a lot of the young people actually hate him. They want to overthrow the king or queen. And he said that the reason why this, these particular trans activists were upset is because drag pokes fun at identity, whereas identity is their obsession. It's all they have. But actually, for drag queens, they realize that like identity is, or they should, I think, uh, I think one of the best parts of drag is realizing that identity is just putting on different wigs, really. We all put on different different costumes all the time. I think that's an interesting little perspective from from RuPaul there. And uh, I do think that this very serious obsession with the self is what's got us all in a lot of sturm and drang recently. Yeah, I just want to put you on the spot for a moment because I would say that I think one very clear difference between a drag artist and a vocal transgender activist is that you are a parody of a particular kind of woman, you are a parody of a diva and you don't consider yourself a woman, whereas the a certain kind of transgender activist would consider themselves to be literally a woman. So do you understand, particularly among certain sections of feminism, which have argued for a long time that women need particular spaces or that womanhood is a particular experience. It's, a, it's, a, it's an experience that only women have and which brings its own experiences and, and problems and issues and so on. Do you have sympathy with their notion that a man dressing as a woman is absolutely fine, but a man claiming to be literally a woman becomes problematic? I would headline that these as women's issues, which I, uh, I remember when I was younger, I used to resist coming down with an opinion on abortion for the very reason that I was unlikely to get a girl pregnant by accident. And so it wasn't something that I was going to have to, <laughs> I have uh, so many opinions about so many things. This being a women's issue, I'm like, let them all fight it out over there. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I, one of my first ever gigs that I did was performing at an Ann Summers party. Now, Ann Summers parties, I don't know if this is still the case, but you're not allowed to have men at them. So one of the rules of the Ann Summers party for the, the women that run their little pyramid scheme where they go around selling dildos was that there was not allowed to be a man there. But of course, I was performing there. So this was some sort of flexibility with the rules. And really, that was for the women in that occasion to feel comfortable or not comfortable with. What I will say is I don't think, I don't particularly like to barge and impose myself into parties where I'm not welcome. So I wouldn't have taken it personally to not be allowed in that event. I understand there are trans people who feel like their identity is being negated by their non-welcome status in certain spaces. My feeling is I, in a sense, I err on the side of the, slightly on the side of the trans person in that I reckon that if this hadn't become a national debate, they would have just ad hoc been able to go about their lives as they've been doing for 50 years and it wouldn't really be a problem. But some little jumped up loudmouths got on this morning to bang on about the subject. And now they've ruined it for quiet trans people just trying to go about their lives. My final question, coming back to what we kicked off with, the issue of freedom of speech. So one of the reasons that you took part in the Day for Freedom and caused yourself all sorts of problems is because you actually think freedom of speech is an important value. So just to finish off, how would you explain to perhaps to someone who's a bit skeptical about freedom of speech, or maybe even views it as a harmful thing that could damage their sense of worth? How would you describe freedom of speech as something that we should actually hold to be quite important? 
let's even just take the question that you just asked me. I think I am careful because there's a lot of potential for a lot of attention to be given to conversations around that subject. And I also have a lot of people who I care about who come down on all sides of that discussion. And I'll be honest and say, my thoughts are not sufficiently formulated on that or certain other subjects for me to as yet be able to want to really uh, take it in the neck for coming down on either side. What I do want, however, is to be able to talk freely about it with you and with my trans friends and with members of the LGBT community and with anybody else that wants to have a serious conversation about the serious issues that are serious for the people that we know and care about. And the reason that free speech is important, therefore, is it's not actually about what I have to say, it's about what I would like to hear. So I would like to be able to hear all of the different things that people have to say about all of the different subjects because I am naturally curious and I'd like to think more deeply and to see further. And the only way to do that is to have open ears and for other people to be able to speak freely so that we can all smarten up and and understand the human experience better. So my main argument for free speech is that we should want it for what it gives us, not necessarily just for what we feel we'd like to give out into the world in terms of what we have to say. Vanity Von Glow, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.